Well, good morning, everybody. How are you? Uh, my name is Ryan. My last name is Barang. So when we gave the, when we gave the, um, the program to the Sandler Center, uh, they thought it said Bangarang, so they set up the Peter Pan stage here. We, we love using the Sandler Center. Um, in any case, I'm going to move that out of the way. Um, it's so good to be here. We, I'm excited because we are in week six of seven weeks total on this series on Psalm 23. So I get to bring to you today Psalm 23.5b, which talks about the oil and the cup. Now, I got to be honest here. I'm usually excited every time I, I, I speak here. Pastor Chris gives me a passage, and I go, yes, that's a good one. This is the first time where I said, oil and a cup. What, what am I going to get out of that? And as it always does, the Word of God became alive in my study and preparation, and I quickly saw that there's just not enough time to cover what we want to cover today. So with that, I want to jump into Psalm 23. Psalm 23 says this, it's a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, and you anoint my head with oil, and my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So, I, I've, been, I've been reflecting, and ever since I found out we were doing this, this, uh, this passage uh, a few months ago, I've just been in it every single day, and I've been, I've been saturating it, and, and my, my good friend uh, Grace over there uh, encouraged me to memorize it, and so I did. But even in the past six weeks, I'm just going to go full disclosure here, okay? I, I don't have any secrets. I, I, I tell people exactly where I am. I, when I heard the second message, Chris was talking about rest, there's something in my soul that said, Man, I, I, I don't have that right now. And even in the past six weeks, I have felt this, I have felt two things. One, this sense of powerlessness over my own sin and struggle. And two, that, that my cup wasn't full and that I was lacking joy. Uh, just a, a brief uh, snapshot in, into my life. I, I felt like, the, like these old hat sins, like the worship of control, trying to control people and circumstances, the worship of... Of, of seeking comfort rather than what's courageous, the, the idol of, of being right, you know, the idol of power, being right and saying something to my kids or pulling, pulling rank on wife and kids or, or just worshiping being approved. I've also found myself making agreements with the enemies of the heart. Jealousy, anger, guilt, greed. We're going to unpack that in a moment. But, and so this is, this is the moment when everybody in the congregation just takes a deep breath and says... I'm not alone. I like that guy because I can relate to him. Anybody? Anybody in here? So this is, yes. Awesome. So this is why the word of God is so good to us. Because that's exactly what the oil in the cup is about. This is the, the, the antidote for all those distractions and all those enemies is found in the oil and the cup. So once again, I did score on getting the best part of Psalm 23. Okay, without further ado, any text 
without a context ain't no text, okay? Any text without a context ain't no text. But before we, we unpack exactly what the oil is and what the cup is, I'm going to touch briefly on what the enemy is. And if you want a full exposition on that, uh, Pastor Chris did a wonderful job last week, and he summed up the enemy like this. He said, anything that would distract us from the presence of the shepherd is the enemy. And I think Jesus would agree with that. I mean, the whole thing about the temptation in the wilderness was about getting his eyes off intimacy with the Father onto things he might want, need, and really like. That's the whole thing about that in Luke chapter 4. Uh, when, we got to remember also, when, when David is penning this song, this is a song. So it's not like Romans or 1 Corinthians where, where it's actually, we're going to follow line by line, precept on precept. This is doctrinal truth. But it's, it's a song. It's meant to stir our affections. It's meant to stir our affections for the shepherd, for the Lord. It's meant to evoke some sort of emotion. So as David is writing this psalm, and as he's singing it, whether it's on the harp or whatever, what's in his mind? So I could think of some enemies that David had throughout his life. He has, he has just quite the resume, doesn't he? Look at Goliath, this giant, taunting him, and he says, the battle is the Lord's. Look at, look at Saul. He was the king, and then he tried to kill David. Look at Absalom, his own son, who defiled the family, tried to overthrow the kingdom, and ended up hanging himself. Those are some pretty hardships. I think for David, when he's, when he's writing about my enemies and he's singing about enemies, those people might have come to mind. Like outward adversity, outward stress, people. But I also know there were enemies internally that he battled with. In, in 2 Samuel 11, in a time when kings would go to war, David wrestled with laziness. Anybody? Yeah? Yes. And he stayed back when everybody was going to war. When the men were going to war, he battled with laziness, and he gave in to that. And then that laziness gave birth to lust. And it was also a time where people bathed on the roof, apparently, and he, he saw some, he saw somebody that he wanted. It lured him in, and that birthed more sin and more sin. And he says, I, I want that. I want that bring her here. And then he commits adultery. And the thing just spins out of bounds. And, and at any time he could have confessed his sin, but he just kept going. And then that birth into first degree murder, he pulled Uriah in. He couldn't get Uriah to sleep with his wife. And then he says, fine, I'm just going to have to resort to killing him. So he put him on the battlefield and gave the order to withdraw all the men. I mean, he's putting the nation at jeopardy now. Like his, his mistakes and his power and control abused cost a man his life and put the nation at jeopardy. But those were inward battles. And so a theme we've had all throughout this Psalm 23 series, and even in this series we had last year called Your Kingdom Come, we've been talking about human flourishing. So I'm going to show you a chart here on human flourishing. I, I, I love this because it also talks about enemies. Now I'm going to mention four enemies of the heart. The four enemies of the human heart. We know what the human heart is. It's the deepest part of our soul. It's, the, it's from the word cardia, and it, it doesn't refer to... Uh, something that beats it for suit our thinking capacity of our being. Now, you can't read this, but I'm going I'm to blow it up in a minute here. These are enemies of the heart. Andy Stanley wrote a book called Enemies of the Heart, and he talks about these four things. I'll expound on it a little bit more. At Anchor Church, and this, for the purpose of this series, we would call this enemies of human flourishing. These are four things that seek, that fracture our peace, our shalom. Shalom is the Hebrew word for peace. It would fracture our peace with God. It would fracture our peace with with others, it would fracture our peace 
with ourselves and it fracture our peace with creation. So the first one, I'm going to go here. Uh, peace with God is broken with jealousy. Now, when I explain all these terms, guilt, uh, well, jealousy, anger, greed, and guilt, it's, I can, I can uh, define it in debt-debtor language. You know what I mean by debt-debtor language? It means you owe me something. So for someone who's jealous, they're really jealous, and they're saying to God, you owe me something. God, you, you owe me a couple inches of more height. Why did you make me this tall? Seriously. Or some people say, God, you owe me. Why, why was I born into this tax bracket? Or, or why was I born into this country? I'm a son of Im- immigrants. My parents could have used it. Why was I born in a shack there or, or whatever? I even have the opposite of that. Like, why was I born in such a nice place? I wanted a more of a testimony, Lord. It's jealousy. You owe me, God, a bigger brain. You owe me a better job. You owe me. Why can't I be like that guy or that girl? That's jealousy. That's how peace, that's how shalom is broken through that jealousy. It's you owe me. Now, peace with others is broken through, I can also say it in debtor language, when you're angry at someone, you're saying, you owe me. You stole this from me, you owe me. You did this to me, you owe me. And we stay angry. Peace with, with ourselves is when we've done something sinful and we say, man, I owe it to me. I messed up. I did this, so I owe this to me. I have to do this. It's debt, debtor language. Lastly, with creation. Peace with, peace with, with creation is broken through greed. And it's, it's again, it's, it's I owe me more stuff. I, need, I, I, I owe me a better this. I owe me an upgrade. I owe me the iPhone. What are we at now? 20, something like that? Okay. It's I owe me more stuff. You know what the answer to all this is? It's in the oil in the cup. It's in the oil in the cup. But we're going to get to that. So, in, in this passage, um, we have enemies of the heart, David, as he's singing, as he's writing, he's probably thinking of David and Goliath. He's probably thinking of all these things. He's probably thinking of the things in his heart. But the New Testament also talks about enemies. Now, I'm just going to talk about really quick. Ephesians 6, 12. It's one of my favorite passages. Maybe I'd get a Sharpie and write it right here so I can always remember that people are not my enemy. Ephesians 6, 12 says, Therefore we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers, against evil forces of wickedness in heavenly places or in high places, some other translations say. <clears throat> so for Paul, nobody's his enemy. Because everybody here <clears throat> is made of flesh and blood. So I can automatically rule you out that you're not my enemy. Guess what? My kids are not my enemy. Now they might not obey me right away, all the way with a happy heart, but they're still not my enemy. And I don't, I don't, get, to, I don't get to braid them. My wife's not my enemy. She's not. She might do, not do everything I want her to do, but she's never my enemy. Because the Bible tells me that my, my struggle is not against flesh and blood, against all these circumstances in life, but there's something else going on, and it would be the enemy. That's Ephesians 6. Uh, Peter, in 1 Peter 5, 6, he talks about your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And then Jesus combats that with greater is he that is in you than he is of the world. In Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, I'm just going to mention it, it sums up the enemy as the world, the flesh, and the devil. So here's all the enemy, okay? 
Pastor Chris said, the enemy is anything that gets me distracted off the presence of the shepherd and onto other things. That's, the, that's, that's your enemy. That's my enemy. That's the enemy of David. That's the enemy in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 15, 26 says that death is the final enemy to be defeated. So here's the point. I don't care if it's the world, the flesh, the devil, sin, death. It's all the enemy. So I, I bunch it into this big ball of wax called the enemy. Now I'm going to give you an illustration uh, got to give a military illustration, okay? So, so bear with me. I'm going to try to civilianize this as best as possible. Let's just say it's 1942, and it's World War II, and we have enemy. We have the Axis nations as our enemy, right? We had Nazi Germany, we had Japan, and we had Italy. So those were all our enemies, correct? In 1942, in World War II, those were our enemy. And you're a radio operator, and you're sitting behind a radio, and your commanding officer says, here's your, here's your one task, here's your one mission. You're listening and if you hear anything other than English, okay, on the radio, and this radio, it'll only pick up uh, Japanese, German, and, and, and Italian, okay? So you're listening, and as soon as you hear something that's not English, you're to call it in, okay? You're to call it in. So you hear something, and you know it's definitely not English. What do you do? What do you do? Do, do I have to wonder whether or not it's Japanese or whether or not it's Italian, or whether or not it's, it's German? Do I have to wonder that? No, because the order is clear. If it's not English, it's not from us, I want you to call it in, and we, we got it. We have it for action. So spiritually speaking, all these enemies will be vying for our attention. They'll be distracting us. They'll be pulling us away from the shepherd focus onto other things. And our only job is to say, I'm going to resist that. Peter's pretty clear. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw, James says, draw near to God. So I don't, throughout the day, Sunday morning, prime time of attack, yeah, or, or Sunday at 12, when we're trying to get out of the parking lot, and Tijuana Flats is too crowded or whatever, I, all I'm doing is saying, oh my gosh, that's not from God. So I can reject that. That's how I handle the enemy. I don't wonder, is this the flesh? Is this because of my background? Is this because I went through this as a child? No, that's the enemy. I don't need to listen to it. What the oil tells us today is very, very key. Oil. What is oil in the Old Testament and in the New Testament? In fact, let's go into the mind of David. As he's singing about oil and he's writing about oil, what's going on in his mind? I would submit to you that he's thinking of 1 Samuel 16, 12 through 13. Not that actual verse, but the event. You know what the event was? I'm going to flash it here on the screen. 1 Samuel 16. And it's when Samuel went to Jesse and he says, I'm going to pick one of your sons for a holy purpose. And, and remember the Lord told Samuel, the man looks at the outward, but God looks at the heart. And he said, this is all the sons you have? Well, we have another one, but he's in the field. Well, go get him. I won't even sit down until you bring him here. And as soon as he saw him, he says, you're the man. And he says this, then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed on David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Come on. When he's singing about this, he's thinking about that time. What, what, a, what a monumental event in his life. He's just a little boy. He's a shepherd. Yeah, he's killed a lion in a bear. That's pretty hardcore. But he's being anointed. He's being chosen in front of his brothers. And the Holy Spirit empowers him from that day forward. Now, he also prayed, 
Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Remember that song from the, from the 90s, old school? Take not thy Holy... So David had to pray that because the, the Spirit in the Old Testament would, would come and go, but, but in any case, oil in the Old Testament was how priests, prophets, and kings were consecrated for holy purpose. I'm just going to mention these quickly, but prophets and kings were anointed with oil when they were put into that position of authority. That's 1 Kings 19.6. And in Exodus 29.7, priests were initiated, were, were invested with power or authority by the anointing of oil. Now, shepherds would anoint their, their sheep with oil as well. We mentioned this book before, A Shepherd's Look at Psalm 23. And I'm going to talk about this. Shepherds with an anoint. Uh, Philip Keller says here in his book, summertime is fly time. And he says, these little flies buzz about the sheep's head, attempting to deposit their eggs on the damp mucous membranes of the sheep's nose. If they are successful, the eggs will hatch in a few days from small, slender, worm-like larvae. This is pretty gross. So... They work their way up the nasal passages into the sheep's head. They burrow into the flesh and there set up an intense irritation accompanied by severe inflammation. That is nasty. That's the enemy of the sheep. And so these sheep would start to, he explains it here, they would start to go like this because you don't have opposable thumbs so they can't go like this. But they start to go like this and then they'll start hitting their heads on rocks and trees. <clears throat> and in a frantic frenzy, they might plummet to their death. You ever get a thought planted in your mind where, you, where you're just minding your own business and you go, oh, where did that come from? I get that all the time. But I go, oh, that's from the enemy. Thank you, Father, that I don't have to listen to that. That's, that's a lie. There's an app on, on, the, on, the, uh, on smartphones. It's called the uh, Truth or Trash app. It's pretty cool. It's just a little, a little drill. Is this truth or trash? I'm a loser. Oh, that's trash. I'm a child of God. Oh, that's truth. It's pretty cool. So, uh, shep oil in the, in the Old Testament would be for power and authority. It means people are being invested with, with authority. In the New Testament, um, oil was always for healing. But I want to focus on the, symbol, the symbolism of uh, power and authority. So David would be thinking about him being anointed. Sheep would be anointed for protection. Philip Keller talks about he make this he'd make this um, little mix of oil. It'd be with uh, linseed oil and tar, and he put all these things in. He said he, when he would smear the nose and the head of the sheep, they would become calm. Uh, w- one last thing in the ancient world, I made a copy here of a of a Bible background commentary. But banqueters in the ancient world were often treated by a generous host to fine oils that would be used to anoint their foreheads. This provided not only a glistening sheen to their countenance, but also would have added fragrance to their persons in the room. So essentially, if, if, a, if a host had a party, he would be busting out the essential oils. Where's all the essential oil people? Yeah, love essential oils. Get the diffuser going and everything, make the room smell good. That's the whole purpose of this banqueting metaphor. It's like, come feast on the table. Come feast at, remember, talked about what's at the table, what's there to eat. It's grace. And the shepherd's saying, come feast on grace. 
I'll never run out of grace. Come get some essential oils, maybe some lavender, some melaleuca, whatever, okay? We've obviously bought, bought that stuff from some of our friends. Okay. Oil in the Old Testament was authority in the New Testament, but there's 296 instances where oil is mentioned in, in the Bible. You know what the predominant theme is for oil in the Bible? It's the Holy Spirit. We see it in, in Samuel when he said oil, it's Holy Spirit. New Testament, oil. So if in the Old Testament, oil was representative of being vested with authority, in the New Testament, it's really the power of the Holy Spirit. In all 296 instances, it's really all referring to the Holy Spirit. Then the oil is about power and authority. The very first thing I got up here when I said, I said, man, I've just felt so powerless over the enemy in my life these past six weeks in this Psalm 23 series. And then I started reading about the oil and talked about the, the, the Holy Spirit that gives me authority and power. Let's talk about authority and power really quick. I'm going I'm to put these words up here. It's, re, it's really important to distinguish power and authority in the Bible because if, if the Spirit gives us authority and power over the enemies, that's the context, right? At the banqueting table, who's at the table? The enemy's there. But because the Holy Spirit... We have power and authority over the Bible. Look at uh, Luke chapter 4, 18 through 19. Now, this is Jesus at the outset of his ministry. This is his very first sermon. He had passed the temptation to take his eyes off of God the, the Father onto things he might need. And then he gets to his first sermon and he says this. Luke 4, 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, freedom, and recovering sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It's talking about him. That sounds like an awesome ministry, doesn't it? I mean, giving sight to the blind, spiritually speaking. like people, You know what a blind person is? is a person that, that there's something right here, but they can't see it. It's like, well, I'm, I'm not angry. I'm not an angry person. I'm not a critical person. I'm not harsh to my family. That's spiritual blindness. So Jesus is in the ministry of, of, of giving sight to that, setting people free. Jesus, Jesus is a freedom fighter. He's the bondage breaker. Fast forward to verse 36. And they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands unclean spirits and they come out of him. Authority and power. The Greek word for for Authority is from the Greek word exousia, and it speaks of executive power, power that was vested to you to carry out, to execute based off of the law of the land. Okay. Dunamis is different because it comes from the Greek word dunamis. It's, it's where we get our English word dynamite. It speaks of kinetic power. It's force. It's actually like, bam, dunamis, like I knock something over. Uh, another illustration, police officers, when they, when they graduate from the police academy, they said, you've been invested with authority. You've been invested with authority granted to you to execute and give people tickets. But if they stand in the middle of the street, they don't have power over cars. They don't. They've been given authority, but they've given no power. Now, their gun has power. There's kinetic energy in the gun. A gun could blow out the tires and then... With dunamis, with dynamite power, you can do it with a stick of dynamite. You can stop things. 
in the New Testament, what are we given over the enemy? Power and authority over the enemy. Did you know that? So when I hear people pray about, hey, can you pray for me? Um, I'm really wrestling with this. I think we've forgotten that we've been anointed with the oil of the Holy Spirit, <clears throat> and we've been given power and authority over all the enemy. Is, is, does that sound too good to be true or, or what? I look, at, look at Luke chapter 9, 1. I'm just going to go there really quick. Luke 9, 1, and, and he called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure all diseases. Look at Ephesians 1, 19. This is, I'm reading this because this is what's invested to us through the reminder that we've been anointed with oil. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. 21. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and is in all. The power of Jesus over the enemy is total. And guess who lives in you and me? Guess who lives in us? Romans 8:11. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you and lives in you and is giving life to your mortal bodies. I tell you about that time where I, was, where I was at the beach and some random guy named John, he just comes up to me and he says, hey man, hey man, Jesus is a real man. He's really on the throne and he really lives in you and me. And I said, Lord, I don't, you don't even know me. But it stuck with me and he was speaking truth. I mean, he was speaking prophetically right there. Didn't even know me, just felt the need to say that. And it's just stuck with me. And I said, that is true. So when I think about the enemies that chase me, when I think about like, control saying, yeah, worship me, or power, comfort, or approval. I was like, man, I don't, you have no power over me. I, I don't owe anything to the flesh. No sin in my life has any power over me because I've been anointed with the Holy Spirit, and I have power and authority over, over all of those things. Okay, so much for oil. Now with the cup. The cup in the Jewish culture would, a full cup would symbolize the abundance of joy and gladness. Wine was actually joy and gladness, and I could see that at that picture. If, if the cup is symbolic of, of joy, and it, it's this image of a banqueting table, and man, I'm going to fill your cup, sim- indicating to you, you're welcome here. You stay as long as you want, and your cup will never run empty. What would happen if we reflected on that truth, that my cup is full? And if, if that cup is speaking of a cup full of joy... Man, that would just, that would fill my heart and I wouldn't bow down to any, any enemy. It wouldn't, it wouldn't affect me. I think Jesus' whole mission in life was, was about joy. I mean, in Luke chapter 2, the Christmas passage, the angel said it from the beginning that I bring you good news of great joy. And then Jesus, when he looked at his disciples in, in John chapter 15, he says, you know, what my, you know what my vision for you guys is? That your joy would be full. And then Jesus, right before he's about to die, in John chapter 17, his last prayer request to the Father in, in, in light of his disciples was, my prayer is that their joy might be full. If this whole thing's about joy and, and, and God's reminding us that, hey, when you're feeling joyless, realize who lives in you so your joy is full. 
it's overflowing. Anchor Church, what, what would this look like if, if we were to realize that we've been anointed with oil, having all power and authority over the enemy? If, if, if at every moment my prayer wasn't, Lord, can I get a little bit more joy? But I'll thank you that I have joy. What if everything shifted from, Lord, I need you to, oh, Lord, I have you? What if it was, Lord, I, what if our prayer shifted from, Lord, I have no power over this sin or this struggle? It keeps, I keep falling into it versus, thank God I've been anointed with oil, with the Holy Spirit. And that thing doesn't have any power over me. I can say no to that because of who lives me, in me. I want to I wrap up by, by showing the human flourishing chart again. The human flourishing chart talks about the gospel, basically. And, and the gospel story is this, that God created everything perfect in the beginning. Everything was perfect. And then man chose to rebel, and then he fell. And, and at the fall, everything was fractured. Peace with God was fractured. Peace with ourselves was fractured. Peace with others was fractured. Peace with creation was fractured. So what's the antidote to jealousy? Well, it's thanksgiving. If jealousy is saying, God, you owe me this, thanksgiving was the antidote that says, thank you, Father, that I have you. What's the antidote to anger? Well, it's forgiveness. I, I don't think anybody said it better than Elsa. Let it go, let it go. That's the word, me, me. just let it go. And you say, but I can't. Well, fine but he can. We're supposed to say I can't because we were never meant to say I can do it on my own. We're, uh, saying I can't is a beautiful thing because it brings me to my knees and I say I, I can't, but you can and you live in me, so thank you, Father. So I'm going to stand up in the power of the Holy Spirit and I have power and authority over this thing. I can let that go. I can forgive because you have unlimited forgiveness, so it's not even my forgiveness. I'm just going to dish it out and I'll just be a conduit of your forgiveness Thank you, Father. I don't have to hold on to that. I don't need a sorry. I don't need anything from anybody. That's, that's the antidote to anger. What about guilt? Anybody, feeling, anybody walking here feeling guilt? What's the antidote to, to guilt? It's confession. See, see, peace with self is broken through guilt, but it's restored through confession. You know what confession is? It's I did this. It's ownership. It's, it's a legal term, homo legato, to say what you said, admit it. And there's power in admitting. There's power in I did this because then it's exposed. The deeds of darkness are exposed and it has no more power. But things that are hidden, they gain power. They're like roots under the ground hidden in a dark place. They just get stronger and stronger until they break the foundation of the house. But where roots are pulled and exposed, it's done. Uh, peace with creation, peace cre with creation, the, the antidote to that is, well, generosity. We have some very good friends up, up north in Rhode Island. Uh, they planted a church, and then they practiced th this thing called uh, irrational generosity. It's totally irrational. Like, they get all their money that they come in, and they just put it back into the community. They put it into missions. They gave everybody in the church these Dunkin' Donuts um, cards, and they say, we want you to go out this week and just buy people coffee. Like, who does that? Who gets in all this money and just puts it back into the community? It's irrational generosity, and it's also the antidote to greed. It's role modeling for people like, hey, this is God's money. Let's, 
Let's dish this out. Okay. Uh, that's the gospel story that, he, that, that God is restoring all that was lost in the fall. So you have creation and, and restoration are the bookends of God's big story, and that's what he's doing. He's in the business of restoration. Anchor Church, we, we, are, uh, we are 77 days today. We are 77 days into 2018. And so I'm going to prophesy right now on what I think God's going to do. Uh, first prophecy, Chris is going to speak on Proverbs 23.6 next week. It's going to be awesome. Okay? Seriously, it's going it's to be awesome as you wrap up this whole thing. This be good. The, the second one is this. I believe God is doing something huge here. He has been. He's been restoring relationships and little pockets of people who share their story when we get together for the leadership meetings and the, the community group leader meetings. And he's, and he's doing something where people are finding hope in Jesus in the midst of communities. He's restoring uh, peace with God, peace with others, peace with self, and peace with creation. He's doing it, and he's going to continue to do it. And I encourage you, the, bus is, the freedom bus is going to come on. I encourage you to just get up, jump on it. Jump on it. It's going to come around again. It comes every 15 minutes. Get on the freedom bus. If there's fears, I wonder how it would affect our lives. You say, well, I don't bow down to fear. I'm going to feast on grace, not fear. How about this? You know what the secret to living free is? It's living loved. Perfect love casts out all fear. You know what the secret to being loved is? It's being known. And I'm not talking about 99% known because that's not, that's not being known. I'm talking about sitting in a community room. And you, just, you just ask around what's going on. You ask little groups. It's happening all over the place. Ask people what it's like to be fully known. Because you know what? You could never be fully loved unless you're fully known. And to be fully known in the midst of community, to be fully known from spouses and spouses is the ultimate freedom. And we say, what am I scared of? I'm not supposed to bow down to fear. That's the enemy. I'm stepping in, Lord. I'm stepping in. You promised me that this is better. So here, here goes. Here's everything about me. And for the community to come in and say, we love you. Thank you for exposing that. Thank you for exposing that and allowing us to love you. Here, let me meet you where you're at. That's what he's doing in, in, in the 288 days we had left. I had to do that math a long time ago to make sure. We got, we got, we got some, he's doing it. What if, our, what if our prayer every day was this? Father, this sounds good. It preaches well, but I just don't feel like I'm there. Thank you that you can do it. Thank you that I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So I'm going to disregard the pull of the enemy, those voices of the enemy. That's not you. I'm going to draw near to you. Thank you that you've reminded me through Psalm 23 that I've been anointed with oil. My cup actually overflows. Thank you for what you're doing here. And I trust you, Lord. Amen.